Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. A popular part of the American mentality has to do with size. And let's be honest, when you're talking about size, we often think bigger is better. Whether or not you agree with it, we see it in the size of our cars, of our meals, of our homes, in lots of different places in our culture. Our next guest wants to take that one step further with a population goal for the United States of one billion people. He says there are a lot of benefits of a larger population from the perspective of America's place on the global stage. And in his new book, he writes about the many ways that this goal can be achieved, including a pretty radical reimagining of our immigration and housing policies. Matthew Iglesias is the co-founder of Vox and the author of a new book called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. And he joins us now. Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Really glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, the title of this book is obviously really provocative. Give us your brief explanation <laughs> on uh, where the idea for this book came from. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of reporting on sort of urban policy in the United States and both looking at cities uh, like New York, like San Francisco, where they have incredible shortages of housing and they need to make changes to let people build more stuff. Uh, But also looking at cities like Rochester and Syracuse and Binghamton in upstate New York, uh, and then places like Cleveland, places like St. Louis, places like Detroit that have suffered from deindustrialization and that have lost uh, huge numbers of people over the years. And, you know, I started to think it's like, well, okay, each city that's in decline needs ways to kind of rebuild its population, to rebuild its economy. Uh, But the cities that are suffering from scarcity, they need ways to accommodate even more people, too. Then you look around, it turns out that most rural counties in the United States are losing people. They're losing working age people in particular. So they need more people, too. So it looks like we really would benefit domestically from having a lot more people. Then we look internationally. China has surpassed us now to become the number one domestic market. And they are throwing that weight around. We, there was a great report from PEN America uh, about how their censors now dictate what can and can't be in Hollywood movies because our movie studios need access to their market. We had hoped that economic integration would export our values to China, but instead we're often seeing that the opposite is happening. So the book, it's, it's built around a radical thought. What if we chose not to accept decline? What if we said we are going to grow our population 1.5% per year, year in and year out for 80 years? We're going to have a billion people by the year 2100. China's population is shrinking. We're going to stay the number one economy. We're going to stay the number one power in the world. We're going to revitalize our Midwestern cities. We're going to grow our coastal cities and our Sunbelt cities. We're going to stabilize our rural communities. And it's going to be really great. So let's talk for a second about the connection between population and power, economic power, cultural power. Are those two things inextricably linked in that way? In other words, is it that more population uh, means that uh, we will remain uh, a superpower or, or become an even bigger superpower? Talk about what those links actually are. Population is necessary but not sufficient. 
right? So uh, right now what you have is, uh, sorry, uh, the United States, you know, is a wealthy country, which mm-hmm. is great, and, and that's good. Uh, at the same time, Canada, New Zealand, those are also wealthy countries. They're nice. They've got a, a good, you know, standard of living, but they're not major powers in the world. And mm-hmm. it's not, you know, mysterious why. There's just not very many people in Canada. Uh, so the United States historically has been the richest by far of the large countries and the biggest of the rich countries. But recently, we've had a lot of economic growth in China, uh, which is really good in a lot of ways. But it's given them an incredible amount of power because there's 1.2 billion people there. So it's a middle-income country. They're about on a par with Mexico or maybe Bulgaria, depending on how you look at it. Mexico and Bulgaria, those are not major powers in the but it's because they have 1.2 billion people uh, that they, they count for so much in the world. And we need to continue in our founding tradition, right? George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the people who made America the great country it is, they didn't want us to be Canada. They didn't want us to be a pleasant uh, but backwatery kind of country. They wanted us to lead the world, to be a shining city on a hill, uh, to be an empire of liberty is what Thomas Jefferson said. And we should try to adhere to those ideals. So uh, one of the things that uh, I, I always come up with uh, when when this subject uh, arises is history, recent history here uh, in the United States, and and recent history here in the city of Detroit. Uh, it's no secret nationally, for instance, that uh, this is a city that used to have almost two million people. Uh, and the years uh, just before uh, I was born, uh, the, the story of my life here in Detroit has been population loss. Uh, and even though uh, the population of the country has grown overall uh, since then, it, it's not growing very fast. And so the question always is, well, if you wanted to have massive population growth in Detroit or in the United States, where would you get it? There are so many things, so many trends that right now uh, argue that we're headed for a smaller population and not a larger one. How would you change that? So, you know, cities like Detroit really need some emergency measures to stabilize themselves, right? It's just really hard when your infrastructure is built for over a million people and you're at less than 700,000 and shrinking uh, to keep things going. And, and it's bad for everybody. It hurts the people who are left behind. It hurts the suburbs, which, you know, benefit from being suburbs of a thriving central city. I think one great way to do this is to look to the power of immigration. Uh, right now, we have a program called H-1B, and it lets American companies bring sort of foreign-born high-tech workers over here for a period of years but they have to work for a specific company uh, that sort of sponsored them. The U.S. Conference of Mayors has said, let's create an extra set of visas for skilled workers. But instead of letting companies sponsor them, let's let cities that want more people sponsor them, right? So then you could have investment in offices and other things like that for high-tech skilled workers coming into cities like Detroit, cities like Cleveland, cities like St. Louis, uh, because workers would be there, right? And it creates new customers for the local businesses. It creates new opportunities for people who grow up in those areas and would like to stay close to home, but don't have the kind of professional opportunities right now that they might want. And you can sort of draw a line under this cycle of collapse. And then you let places take advantage of their their incredible assets, right? I mean, I, I don't need to tell you, but like Detroit has incredible cultural amenities. 
experience, right, that any great city in the world should have. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to sustain them when you don't have the people. When you start repeopling these cities, the incredible assets that they have become valuable again, and they become more attractive places to live for more and more people. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Matthew Iglesias, who's the co-founder of Vox and co-host of Vox's The Weeds podcast. He's also the author of a book titled One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. We're talking about the idea of actually growing the United States population in a massive way uh, as a way of maintaining its place uh, among economic powers, among cultural powers, uh, the idea that massive population growth is a key to our success. Uh, we would love to hear from you as well during the segment. Uh, what do you think of the argument that massive population growth is not just possible but necessary in the United States? Do you think that's a good solution for improving our standing in the world? Do you worry maybe, though, what that might mean for things uh, like the environment given that uh, population growth is one of the things that, uh, that, that we are concerned about when we talk about environmental uh, issues and danger. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, give us a call and tell us what you think of the prospect the possibility for massive population growth here in Detroit and southeastern Michigan, uh, two places where we have seen population loss over uh, a long period of time. And we've seen the consequences of that population loss, the kind of stressors that are on local governments, on cultural institutions, on all of the things that make up our life here are tougher because uh, we keep losing people. Uh, what would be a strategy for going in the other direction. Uh, before we get to listeners, uh, Matthew, I want to talk about immigration. I think you can't talk about population growth without talking about immigration. Uh, your book uh, proposes a lot of creative ways to go about expanding uh, the American population. And one of the primary tools is a revised and more open immigration policy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, immigration is an incredible strength of the United States. And at some level, I think everybody knows it. I mean, I was really struck when I saw Mike Pompeo. He's Secretary of State, obviously a key member mm -hmm. of the Trump administration. He's talking about the U.S. and China. And he says, you know, nobody really wants to move to China. Um, and he's correct about that. Uh, but the administration he serves in is not taking advantage of that fact. He is turning down almost every avenue for legal immigration to the United States. And then he's talking constantly about illegal immigration. Um, and of course, look, I think normal people want to see immigrants following the law, right? But you need to create legal mechanisms so that people can do that. So we can say, look, if you want to come live here, here's what you've got to do. Uh, but we should make it possible for people to come, both because it, it grows our sort of national strength in an international competition sense, but it also makes us more prosperous. And if there's specific problems with specific classes of people, you know, we can make a rule there. But there's, there's tons of opportunities, for example, to let foreign-trained doctors come here and help reduce our health care costs, foreign-trained dentists, uh, technology workers. There's, like, an incredible opportunity in being a country that people from all around the world want to move to. And we need to take advantage of it. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, and this idea that the Trump administration is headed in the absolute opposite direction and has been not only since the first day it took office, but but far before that uh, on the campaign trail. I don't know. I, I think that that again, it just raises questions about whether we could even have this conversation about massive population growth. We we really are just not in that space uh, as a country. There are so many things that we're doing that that are not going to lend uh, lend to the idea that we're going to grow massively as a nation. But, you know, I've been encouraged on my virtual book tour. I've gone on a lot of conservative shows and so many programs I've been on. People say, you know, look, I've got no problem with legal immigration. Um, And what they don't know or maybe don't don't want to admit is that the Trump administration has been trying to reduce legal immigration. Mm -hmm. They've been looking at everything they could do in their executive action. They have gotten behind legislation in Congress to cut legal immigration by 50 percent. Now, President Trump doesn't talk about that. That's not part of his political agenda. It's not part of his presentation to the country. It's something he and his team have cooked up privately. And it's a bad idea. And it's not a popular idea. And I think we should talk more about that. We should talk about legal immigration as a political issue, as a mechanism for revitalization of cities that are hurting, as a tactic for international relations, as a path to prosperity for the country, as a potential solution to some other problems that are sort of plaguing us on the higher education front, on the healthcare front, things like that. And, you know, of course, the question about what do you do with undocumented people? How do you treat asylum seekers humanely? Those are important subjects, but they're not the whole picture of immigration. And we need to start having the conversation. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Janet in Detroit. Janet, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Hi, how are Good. you? It's a wonderful conversation. I'm anxious to get the book um, I was thinking that this is one of the most exciting ideas I've heard in a while. I think uh, we have this huge uh, global population move all over the country, and we got to think uh, a lot about where all these people are going to go. The other thing is I think we should not have work for uh, crowdedness, but to encourage church density, hmm. uh, and that I, my five universals could really benefit us. <clears throat> so we have to and put it put in that I think um, the need to really do our infrastructure to reflect our action on ecology and climate change, yeah. but then to also offer uh, housing, income, education, transportation, and health uh, support to everybody, and then that will lift I think the whole um, scene of what we're experiencing now, and we won't be the us and them. Uh, ideas yeah. that seem to move around. Uh, uh, Janet, before I let you go, can you can you I want to go back to something you you said you talked about the need for density and not crowdedness. Uh, talk about the distinction that you're drawing there. I think uh, more and more people we tend to think of the pictures of people during the uh, 20s when folks were crowded 
to New York, and uh, so we see cities as this crowded place where people who can't do any better are. But I think we need the density of people so we have more business, more more access, more reasons to have the infrastructure that we have and need to improve on. Uh, so the crowdedness mm. is a problem, mm-hmm. and we have to be careful, I think, to make sure that we get density, more and more people, uh, and we're finding now that we need less and less space, really, mm. for mm. living, uh, so we, we don't have the, the big house next to the small house, right. I think. <laughs> right, right. And uh, really, it helps us to rethink a lot of things about um, the way we live, how we live, and uh, all of that. But I think we are going to have more people coming from everywhere to all countries because of this global population movement that's happening all over the world yeah. for lots of reasons. One is climate, uh, one is opportunity, one is education, all these things. Yeah. Janet, so, I, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and those pretty complex thoughts uh, about this issue. Matthew Iglesias, I'll give you a chance to respond to what she's saying there. You know, the distinction between crowding and density, I actually think, is quite important here. Uh, Because what we've got, you know, people sometimes think about, okay, just packing more and more people Mm -hmm. into the housing units that we already have. Uh, But that's not the way to have, like, a dynamic, prosperous, modern society. It's that you can actually just build more houses. You know what I mean? And, and that sort of gets gets you done and can create, you know, nice, spacious, uh, good ways for, for pe- people to live and, and have a high standard of living. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the caller talked about, I think it was a really smart call, the whole range of issues that is posed by this proposition. And that's what the book is about. I, I think a lot of sort of politics books, policy books, they kind of give you like nine chapters laying out a problem and then one chapter but they rush through solutions and it's not that convincing. I really wanted to flip that in this book. You know, describe a problem. We are falling behind internationally, basic numbers game, and then lay out solutions across eight chapters. So we go through education, housing, transportation, how it impacts the environment, all these kind of different things. Because obviously... Going for big population growth would be a big change. Mm-hmm. It would involve a lot of adjustments here and there. But I think the more you think about it, the more you marinate in the idea and the more you explore the specifics, you see that it's a really exciting possibility. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Matthew Iglesias about uh, global population growth uh, and, and population growth here in the United States and in Michigan and Detroit. We want to continue to hear from you as well. We'll get to John in St. Clair. We'll hear some comments from Wilma in Detroit. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we will make you part of the program that way. Hang on, and we will be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... 
Really glad that you have tuned in. My guest is Matthew Iglesias, co-founder of Vox and co-host of Vox's uh, The Weeds podcast. Also the author of a book titled One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. We're talking about population growth here in the United States and whether that's a key to sustaining uh, our place in the world and maybe enhancing our place in the world. We really want to hear from you about this subject as well. 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to start with uh, a comment from a caller who could not stay on the line. Wilma from Detroit uh, brings up, I think, a great question. She says, how do you build the physical infrastructure to accommodate a billion people? Uh, Is there a political will to pay for that kind of investment. Infrastructure is something we talk about a lot on this show. Uh, it's something we talk about a lot here in Southeast Michigan, where it is absolutely crumbling uh, uh, because of lack of investment. Uh, which which comes first, I guess, is one of the questions. Do you get the population to be able to generate the the tax support to, to build better infrastructure, or do you have to build better infrastructure to, be, to attract people to come live uh, in places where they don't right now anyway. Matthew, what's your uh, answer there? You know, there's not a single clear pat answer to that question for, for some parts of the country, right? Um, if the broadband internet was better, if it was more available, if it was more competitive market, more people would move there uh, because, you know, they do the kind of white collar work that can be done remotely, uh, but they need it there. For other places, I mean, I would say for Southeast Michigan, the fact that the tax base has eroded becomes a big challenge mm-hmm. to upgrading the infrastructure. It's not so much that the infrastructure is overtaxed as that it's actually, uh, you know, overburdened. It's actually underutilized. So it's not feasible to keep it uh, upgraded at the level people would, would like to see. Um, you also have to consider, right, if you're talking about one particular place's problem, then you might think, okay, if we do a big surge of infrastructure spending, it becomes more desirable to live here, our population will grow, it'll all pay off. But that doesn't work for every city simultaneously, right? Detroit and St. Louis and Cleveland and Buffalo can't all do that at the same time because, like, where are the people going to come from? So part of the goal of setting a sort of national objective of population growth is to give each place the confidence that, like, there will be people looking for houses, looking for good opportunities, so you should plan for growth. You should make investments in your infrastructure. Now, in some other parts of the country, what we have is, you know, there's plenty of tax base available in San Francisco, but the prices that they are paying for the infrastructure that they're trying to build are totally crazy. Um, So part of the book is talking about this international comparison. Why are France and Sweden and Korea and Spain and Japan so much better at digging tunnels, so much better at building bridges? than we are in the United States. So that's kind of like three different infrastructure issues, one in rural areas, one in cities that have have lost people, and one in cities that are growing fast. And it would be nice if there was like a single bullet that solved all those problems at once. Uh, I think setting an ambitious target helps organize our thinking. But, you know, infrastructure is like it's it's very much a question of specifics where where the devil's in the details. Mm. Uh, I also want to read a, a Twitter comment from Kalisha, which I think is really, really incisive here. She says, I'm trying to sit through today's conversation, but it doesn't feel realistic 
given the pandemic, social political climate against immigration, population growth, and violent acts against black and brown bodies, the institution of racism that continues to plague the U.S. I, I think it's impossible to talk about population growth without talking about demographic change uh, and the demographic change that we're experiencing in this country and uh, the, the, the terrible uh, uh, problems we have with uh, treating people uh, fairly and equally with dealing with uh, diversity and and uh, multiple uh, multiple backgrounds and cultures uh, in this country i mean uh, we are we are watching the city of louisville absolutely explode i think quite justifiably uh, today uh, in reaction to the fact that the cops who who killed Breonna Taylor are not going to face uh, the the kind of criminal consequences that many people think uh, would be appropriate. Uh, it, it does seem an odd backdrop for a conversation about growing population, given that uh, it's just very difficult to imagine um, that that the, it, the the growth wouldn't be largely black and brown, and that uh, a lot of folks would not be in favor. Look, this is the question of American history, and in some level always has been, right? Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln, he says at, at Gettysburg, I, I went there a couple weeks ago with, with my son who's gotten interested in the Civil War. He says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Uh, now, of course, he knew, right? It was the middle of a civil war. He knew that not everyone in America believed in the equality of all men. He knew that there were people who, who wanted to hold African-Americans in slavery and bondage. And he knew that that impulse, right, that white supremacist impulse was so strongly felt by the Confederate leaders that they would destroy the country rather than agree to equality. And both of those premises, right, like this is, this is the nation of Abraham Lincoln and of Frederick Douglass, and it's also the nation of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. And that tension has been within us forever. Mm -hmm. But we have gotten where we are as a society, right? Uh, victory in World War II, the presidency of Barack Obama, right? Because Lincoln's America has won out in moments of great crisis. And so to me, uh, part of the idea of this book is to raise the stakes, mm. right? That this is a question in part of what black people, immigrants are entitled to as human beings, free and equal citizens. But it's also a question of like, what are we doing as a nation? Do we want to be so xenophobic, so narrow-minded, so dedicated to our racial prejudices that we are going to shrink away from national greatness and have a new century of Chinese hegemony? Mm. Or are we going to look at our founding principles and what they mean and do, you know, uh, the, the, Lincoln again said, the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated this land far above our poor power to add or detract, mm. right? Uh, are we asking, uh, people fought and died for these values. They have throughout generations. All we need to do right now is like let them come here and have jobs, not shoot them in their homes on no-knock warrants. It's so much easier than the challenges we've met in the past, and I don't think we should shrink away from it. Mm. Uh, I want to quickly take uh, one more call uh, before we have to end the segment. Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, I think that one reason that people might not want to have kids in the United States is because of our current sadistic for-profit health care system. Mm. 
Uh, people are just one medical event away from bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And if we had single-payer health care, people might want to have more children. Hmm. Aaron, I, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Matthew, I know that uh, we've got short time here, but we didn't really talk uh, much about the idea of population growth through family growth, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, the American family is changing and, and getting smaller. It's developing a little later. Uh, as Aaron says, one of the things that people think about a lot, I think, is is healthcare and, and our, our approach to it in this country. Um, uh, we talk about the, 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 the challenges with population growth and sort of that natural family growth that we're not seeing uh, in America. Yeah, this is the other half of the book. I, I try not to get too deep into the weeds of healthcare because that can be a whole other book. Um, but, uh, you know, yes, like we need to make provision for what families with children need. They need health care. They need uh, preschool or child care. They need, particularly when the kids are young, they just need some money. You know, I, if you've got kids, you know, it's like those diapers and bottles and little toys. Like it just all costs money. And we need to support people in those aspirations. Uh, right now, people have significantly fewer children than they say they would like to have. And the main reason they cite is money. Healthcare is a big part of that. Uh, there's a lot of different aspects to it. But there's a big theme in the book. Okay. Matthew Iglesias, co-founder of Vox and author of the book One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. It was really great to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the celebrity. Was her status as an American pop culture figure problematic? I'm going to talk with Washington Post columnist Alyssa Rosenberg about that. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones, 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today.